You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. Out of curiosity, who, who would like, who is terrified at the thought of having to come up on this stage and speak to everyone else in the room? Who, who would be petrified of that? I love this because no one ever puts their hand fully up because they're all like, this is the trap. It is! No, I'm kidding. It is. Uh, I, this is something for me, I don't know what it is. Uh, speaking to crowds has never been uh, a, a thing that has really made me nervous. Driving lessons made me nervous, but that is a story for another day because we would be here for hours. Um, but standing on stage is not something, talking to crowds, not something I've ever particularly been nervous about, except for one time. And I thought this morning I'd let you in on that, that one time. In fact, guys, you can head off. Thank you so much. Can we give these guys a hand? Uh, you may have noticed that uh, we had Jeremy on the drums this morning. Uh, so just to recap, Jeremy plays guitar, plays keys, leads worship, can also play drums. So next week he's just going to do it all by himself. It's going to be uh, going to be super exciting. Maybe get the harmonica out. I'm looking forward to that. Prophesy like it is done. Um, let me. Oh, where was I? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the one time where things on stage went really badly for me. So you can all share in my trauma. 2013, before I came on staff with a Life Leadership College, I was part of our conference team at church. And my role particularly that year was overseeing all the registration side of things. Now, if you remember 2013, that was the year where we were running two back-to-back conferences at our old South campus, and one of them sold out. Now, at the time, this was like, we kind of knew it was coming. We'd been, I'm pretty close, we'd been selling out for a while. We thought we'd done everything. We'd emailed people out. We'd say, hey, we're getting close. Make sure you lock it in, all the rest of it. And then one filled up beforehand. Like, great, we've got the second conference. This is really good. But there was a problem. We soon discovered that there were many, many women around the country who had booked airfares, who had booked accommodation, who had booked transport, who had organised all their friends to come and just forgotten one small little itty-bitty detail. They hadn't registered. And so for the next month leading up to conference, I got email after email, phone call after phone call. I'm not saying there was bribes, but it was getting pretty serious. People like, we need to be there. I've sorted everything else out. I've sorted my leave. I've sorted my family, my kids, the airfares. Everything's paid for. I have to get into that conference. And so I spent a month Uh, trying to work through all these problems, trying to figure out anything we could do to make it happen. I was getting, please, you know, please. Don't think I got death threats, but might have blocked those out. Anyway, we did what we could, got as many people into the conference as we could, and then comes the actual conference. I'm thinking, this is over. But on the final night, they decided they were going to draw names out of the hat for people who had registered um, for... People who'd registered for the following year, they're going to pull names out of the hat to find a prize. And what had been happening during that week is that a couple of the guys had been running a pre-show, the Misters of Sisters, uh, and they'd been on stage, and they'd been interviewing a few random like, males that they found to, to come up on stage. And foolishly, I thought, if I just keep my head down and don't make eye contact, I'm going to be sweet. Now, to be honest, I actually really love like talk shows. I love chat shows. They have an ability to have lots of laughs, lots of good times. I've kind of always wanted to be on one of those chat shows that having to be famous. I'm not sure how that works. I don't think they want me, but still, that has been kind of like a dream. But this day, I got pulled up on stage with the others, and so I walk on stage, last day of conference, 
I'm kind of a little cross-eyed by this point. And I sit down, and Pastor Luke looks at me and goes, Ben, what are you looking for in a woman? <laughs> and I slowly turn my head and look at this crowd of thousands of women who I have spent the last month emailing and answering phone calls and doing whatever I could do to try and sort out all the problems that they were having, and I'm like, I didn't just hesitate, I froze. <laughs> like, awkward staring, not moving, I was like, I don't know what I want. I've spent the month trying to figure out, make this happen for what they want. I, I, I don't know. And the guys are like figuring they've got like a dead fish, so they're like trying to like liven things up and make jokes, and they're coming back to me, and I'm still. <laughs> it's so awkward now that Pastor Luke puts the mic away from, leans over and says, just say you want a chocolate bar. <laughs> so I do the really cool thing of pulling up my mic and be like, Luke said I should say I want a chocolate bar. <laughs> Like, the Holy Spirit's left the room, like, people are weeping and crying and killed the vibe. And my last chance to redeem the situation is to kind of, you know, have a laugh about it, walk off stage, kind of saunter off stage in a kind of a cool and a relaxed manner. But Pastor Luke gets on the mic and says, well, Ben's one of the amazing team behind the scenes, so if you see him around, make sure you give him a big hug. And I'm so embarrassed at this point, I run off stage like a five-year-old who has wet themselves at the Christmas production. I just <laughs> bolt. <laughs> Have you ever felt like you're caught out? Yeah. yeah. Have you ever felt like that you were completely exposed and ashamed and embarrassed? Because yep. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. And you're like, oh, great. Thank you so much. Glad we stayed in Auckland for the long weekend. <laughs> I want to talk this morning about kindness. Because here's what I would like to put out to us today. Uh, one or two things. First of all, we've got legacy coming up. And if we think that legacy and this legacy offering coming up is just about finance, if it's just about ticking some boxes, then I think we've actually missed the power of what we do in this moment. And the second thing is this, we're in a year of overcome. And if overcoming for us just becomes about what we personally overcome, and not helping other people overcome, then I think we've also missed it. Yeah. And what I want to suggest this morning is that the kindness is not just some weak, wishy-washy, nice, hallmark, Mother's Day idea, but weakness has incredible power, mm-hmm. and weakness has incredible um, hope attached to it. And so let's talk about this this morning. If you have a Bible, would you turn to John chapter 8 with me, please? Um, this message, if you want a title for it, is Kill It With Kindness. Kill it, kill it with kindness. If you turn to the person next to you, just look at them straight in the eyes and say, kill it with kindness. Okay, turn to the person on the other side who's got way more energy and say, kill it with kindness. There we go, there we go. All right. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And this morning, I want to talk through John chapter 8, because I believe this is one of the most powerful demonstrations of what kindness can do when we choose to step into it in a moment. So it starts off with this, John chapter 8, verse 2, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, before we go any further in this story, you may have seen this story before where um, this woman we're going to talk about is always seen like kind of sprawled at Jesus' feet really dramatically. 
um, and Jesus is standing. The sitting and the standing part is going to be important. So as we read through this, hang tight and we'll come back to it. So at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Pretty wild story. Let's break down what's happening. You see, there is significance to why Jesus was sitting. In that time, in that day, and in the Jewish um, culture, if you were the teacher, um, you would either stand or sit to, sit, uh, to, to teach. If you were to stand, it's because you were in an environment like out in the wilderness or so on. But if you stood to teach, then everyone else was expected to stand as well. And if you sat down to teach, you'd usually have an elevated seat and everyone else would sit below you. For this reason, the person who was seated um, carried authority. In fact, when you taught in the synagogue, this seat that they sat on was called the seat of Moses. Because in that moment, you were to be seen to have the same authority and the same um, gravitas that um, Moses had when he wrote the law. So Jesus is seated in the position of authority, in the position of teaching. Everyone else would have probably been in a circle around him, seated on the ground. And this woman is brought forward, and she's made to stand in this circle. I mean, talk about being caught out. So this woman is standing there while, um, while the Pharisees are like, what are you going to do with this woman? Now, there's some suspicious stuff going on here. Anyone like... Um, those true crime documentaries, anyone get caught up in those? A couple of people, oh, oh there we go. Um, maybe you listen to the serial podcast, whatever it is. Let's break down some of the suspicious stuff going on here uh, in this situation. Number one, this woman is brought by herself to be judged. Now, it is true in the law at that time that the, the consequence for adultery was death by stoning. In fact, you can find that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But it was both parties. So for whatever reason, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery, which means she's been caught in the moment, but the dude's not there. So that's the first suspicious thing. The second suspicious thing is this. It's incredibly convenient that they found this woman at this time. Jesus, for the last few days at this point, has been teaching in Jerusalem. He's been um, really giving the Pharisees a hard time and saying, God, you guys are missing the main point here. You're missing what this gospel is all about. You're missing what God's grace is all about. And so they're pretty frustrated at this point, and so they're wanting to find a way to, to target him, and they just happen to find this woman in the middle of adultery. So one or two things. Number one, they are, they've set this woman up to use her as an example. Or number two, they knew what was going on and deliberately didn't stop and intervene until she was, had gone too far. Actually, according to the law at the time, if you knew someone was heading into sin, it was your obligation under the law to, ste to step in and to stop them to provide counsel. Mm -hmm. And they deliberately didn't do this. Here's the third reason why it's suspicious. This is not actually about the woman for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And here's why. In the culture at that time, they were being oppressed and they were being run by the Roman Empire. Now, they had a very uneasy relationship. The Jewish people wanted their own autonomy. They wanted to run their own things. They didn't want to live by this pagan Roman rule. But the Romans were making sure that they, uh, they had a, an iron fist and they made sure they knew how things were going. And so there's this uneasy relationship. And so how it works out is this. The Romans said, look, you can keep your Jewish law, 
but anything related to corporal punishment, anything related to capital punishment, anything related to people being put to death, you can't make the decision on that. That's for us alone. So what's happening here is when these Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring this woman in front of Jesus, it's actually not about what she's done. They're trying to use it to trap Jesus for this reason. If Jesus says, um, you can't stone her to death, that's not in the, it's not in our power, it's not in our delivery, Jesus then comes across as weak and compromising. He's not upholding the law. And potentially then he loses his followers who are seeing him as the one who's chosen to come and to rescue the Jewish people. But on the flip side, if he sides uh, with the Jewish people and says, yes, she should be stoned to death, number one, he knows that while it is legal, it is unjust because this woman has been set up. And number two, he faces arrest and, um, and even crucifixion by the Roman Empire. So Jesus is caught in this very tough position. It's very public. It's very awkward. And this poor woman is standing there in the middle of it. And so how do we think Jesus responds? Well, I don't know about you, but this wouldn't be my first thought. Jesus is sitting in the seat of authority. This woman is brought before him. Everyone is hearing her dirty laundry. And the Bible says he does this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to get an answer out of someone and they start bending down and playing in the dirt, I'm going to be a little frustrated. But Jesus leans down and starts drawing in the dirt. And it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up to them, looks at them, and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up again and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you realize in this moment, Jesus doesn't address the woman until the shame has been removed, until every other person has been removed. And you see, while I'm assuming this week no one's brought someone towards you and said this person's committed adultery, should we stone them or not, um, it has importance for us today. Because I want to talk about a topic that no one's particularly enthused about, and that is shame. I want to talk about the power of shame. I think in today's day and age, we have weaponized shame like never before in history. Now, we live in a day and age where we talk about tolerance, we talk about, um, you know, you can live your truth, uh, we talk about a lot of social justice and all the rest of it, but we have weaponized shame in such a way that uh, it has always become competitive about who can be shamed the most. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, reality TV, that great instrument of education and joy and hope and all the rest of it. Most reality TV sh shows you watch, there will be a villain or a couple of villains. I don't think these people sign up to the show going, you know what, I really want the nation to hate me. That's, that's really what I'm going for here. I also don't think that that's stupid, that they go, I'm going to act like a complete idiot and not realize that there are cameras there. But there is a power to editing and to manipulation and all the rest to set people up to be villains so the audience, so you and I, know who we're cheering for and who we're, uh, who we're rooting against. 
And we do that, and these people get put in positions of shame so that we feel better about ourselves by comparison. Or you look at the, uh, the, pretty much half the news stories at the moment is someone's offended by something, and so because we're offended, then we shame the person who offended us, and they'll go back and try and shame the other person, and there's this ongoing battle about who should be more ashamed than than anyone else. And and this becomes this competition, because if, if you're more shamed than I am, then I feel better about who I am. But Jesus comes and destroys the power of shame, because you know what? Shame holds people back. Shame holds people back from stepping into believing that it can be more for them, into stepping into who God is. Shame is an, uh, it's a, a weapon of the enemy. And for you and I in our lives, we're not just saved by Jesus to have a good time, but we're here to impact the world around us. And a big part of that is if we're going to help people overcome the situations they're in, overcome their distance from God, we need to be people who can kill shame with kindness, just like Jesus did. And so let me, uh, let's talk through... I've just got four really practical points talking about how we can use kindness to help kill shame. Number one is this. Kindness sees the individual. Kindness sees the individual. I'm not convinced the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws ever really looked at that woman because she was just part of their plan. She was just a step in the process. She was part of the ploy. You realise that Jesus deliberately did not acknowledge her or the situation until everyone else was removed from the process. Jesus saw her. She had messed up. While the situation was not particularly just or fair, she had still messed up. She'd put herself in a position where she had really done some damage. We don't know the full situation. We don't know if she was engaged and he was single, or if she was married and he was single, if it was vice versa. But either way, she was damaging a relationship. She was damaging a family. She was bringing... Um, ruin and upset to her community. It would have been so easy for Jesus to dismiss her or to put her aside or just to shame her so he can move on and keep teaching, but Jesus saw the individual. And you know, for you and I, when it comes to our everyday, how much are we seeing the people that we're around? We live fast-paced lives. We're running in and out. There's a lot of stuff going on at all times, but the individual is important. And uh, while I'm confessing about embarrassing moments. Two weeks ago, I was leaving here. And I have this problem. Just going to let that pause sink in while you're all start wildly imagining. My problem is this. I live in central Auckland. I've got a 25-minute car trip home. I'm usually starving after church. And I have to go past Constellation Drive where there's about four fast food joints to get there. In my head the whole time, like, if I eat then, I got like I don't have to wait till I get home. The other problem is I'm close to like a minute to my house. There's another five drive through places. So even if my resolve is good leaving here, by the time I get there, I might be like, everything's starting to look good. Um, I've rewritten Psalm 23 for myself. Yea, though I drive through the valley of the shadow of temptation, I will buy no drive through But I don't always stick to it. And two weeks ago, I did not stick to it. And so I jump in the McDonald's drive through line and, and I pull in and... There's no line, I'm pretty stoked, I'm like, I'll get through this quickly. And I wind my window down, and the voice comes from the speaker box and says, hi, would you, uh... And I'm sitting there going... And I'm like, okay, this is weird, but I'll just wait a second, and then maybe 10 seconds later, there's this, hello, I... And there's like a full like, minute after that where I'm just sitting in my car going, what is happening? 
And it's getting kind of awkward at this point because the other lane next to me, the person's being talked to and placing their order and driving through. And so I'm like, okay, I've got a couple of options here. I can stay seated in my car in this lane and I may be here for the rest of my life <laughs> because there's no sign that anything's going on. I'm like, or I can get out of my car, run inside and find out there's some sort of issue, but then I'm blocking the lane and I'm being that jerk who's blocking everyone up. Or I can try and do that awkward reverse my car all the way out of the drive-thru uh, and, and then park and go in and whatever else. And so I'm sitting there thinking through all these thoughts, feeling a little bit embarrassed, feeling like, what is everyone around me thinking I'm doing right now? And eventually the voice comes to the speaker box and kind of pretends like nothing's happened. So, hey, how can I, can I take your order, sir? And so I put the order through and all the rest of it, and like drive through. And I had this going through my head. I thought, you know what, this has been inconvenient, this has been weird, and I don't know what's going on, but whatever it is, there's probably something going on in this person's life today. So anyway, I drive around and the girl at the counter doesn't um, kind of acknowledge anything. She's like, oh, that's this much. And I did the pay wave and all the rest of it. And while it was processing, I just took a breath and looked at her and said, hey, has it been a really busy morning? And she looked a bit embarrassed and she said, well, no, to be honest, I just stuffed something up and I can't get my brain out of it. My mind's just caught in it. And I looked at her and I said, I actually know that feeling. I said, and you just can't get stuck there. You just got to move on. Don't, it happens to all of us. You just don't get stuck there. And then the, the, the thing had gone through, and she was like, oh, thanks. And so I you know, did the whole thing of kind of went to drive forward, and then I could only drive forward five centimeters because the car in front of me was right there. So I did that whole, so have a nice day. <laughs> and then we pretended that we couldn't see each other anymore. And... <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't really know if what I said made a huge difference to that girl that day, but I do know that there's incredible power in empathy. Empathy is putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and saying, hey, I don't just see this from my perspective, but also from yours. And a kindness in a moment where someone is off guard, where someone is feeling ashamed, when someone is feeling like they haven't done enough, kindness sees the individual and brings empathy, and it's powerful. That's what Jesus did with this woman. He saw her and he placed value on her. You know, every single person has value, because we were made in God's image. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you've been through, no matter how many times you've hurt people, you still have value because you were made in God's image. He is passionate and wildly in love with you and every single person out there. So we don't have the, li the liberty, we don't have the, uh, the luxury of um, dismissing anyone, but there is value in every individual. Number two is this. Kindness doesn't play the shame game. Kindness doesn't play the shame game. Let's talk about how shame operates. When we do something wrong, we feel guilt. Has anyone ever felt guilt at any point about anything in their lives? Just, oh, you're less honest than the 840, you'll be happy to know. <laughs> so guilt is when we have done something wrong and it's that moment where we go, this is wrong. In that split second, there are two choices. The first one is conviction, which says, this is not who I am. Yeah. This, is not who I, this is not who I am, I need to do better. Right. And conviction takes that guilt and heads towards transparency, towards vulnerability, it asks for forgiveness, it asks for help, it opens up, it brings other people in, and that leads to change and that leads to hope. Yeah. This is not who I am, so I choose a different way. Yeah. That's conviction. 
The other, the other path we can take when it comes to guilt is condemnation. And condemnation says this. It says, I am not good enough and there is no hope for me. This is what shame sounds like. Uh, Brene Brown, who's uh, an incredible speaker, um, incredible author, um, actually doesn't, isn't very uh, overt with it in her books, but actually comes from a really strong position of faith. Um, she's um, kind of been on Oprah, she's written best-selling books, uh, and she's this, she's this lady, she's a shame researcher. And from years and years of, the, of, of um, analyzing shame and analyzing its effect on people, she came down to this, she said, you know what shame needs to survive? It needs secrecy, it needs silence, and it needs judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment don't exist from a place of conviction. It's only in a place of condemnation. And this is how shame operates. Can I tell you something about how Jesus handled this moment? Jesus didn't play the shame game. He didn't shame the woman. He didn't try and get her to talk about all her stuff in front of a group of people. She didn't point her out or call her names or anything else. Do you know something even more revolutionary? Jesus didn't shame the Pharisees or the teachers of the law either. Because bear with me here. Everyone's favorite part about the story is what did Jesus write in the dirt, Right? You've probably heard, like, he wrote the names of their mistresses. They all had mistresses, and Jesus was writing all their names out. I was like, gotcha. Uh, some scholars think that he wrote the verse about, uh, you know, if you see someone in sin, you should step in and stop them rather than judge them. Some people think he wrote the verse about uh, if you um, if even look at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery. So I went through book after book, web sources. I tell you, I've researched this thing to the hilt trying to get the answer on this. And you know what I came away and discovered? Are you ready for the revelation? We don't know. <laughs> Here's why I think that's important. Whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt spoke to those people, but we don't know what they did. And I would suggest we don't know what they did because the, um, John, who wrote this gospel, also didn't know what they did. Jesus did not pitch shame against shame. He didn't play the shame game and say, cool, if you want to shame her, I'll shame you. But rather, he, he minimizes it and drops it down and says, the shame game is not what, this, this doesn't fit into anything. This doesn't belong. We don't play the shame game. I'm not going to pull someone else down because they try and pull someone else down. I step free from this cycle. If you're, without, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone, but I won't be the person to try and step into the cycle. I'm going to break it, not continue it. Jesus broke down the shame game. You know, the failings of others are never our success. The failings of others are never our success. And so we don't step into these moments where other people mess up and think that gives us any sort of credibility, any sort of hope. But rather, we choose to focus on kindness. So kindness sees the individual. Kindness doesn't play the shame game. Number three is this. Kindness sees the opportunity for change. You know, after Jesus had caused the crowd to, to disappear after Jesus was just left with this woman. He didn't then launch into her and say, why did you do this? How could you make such a dumb decision? Don't, know, don't you know what you've cost me today? Don't you know what position you put me in? But instead he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And then he says this, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't say it's hopeless or get out of my presence, he said, hey, there's a better way forward. You know, as, as Christians, we need to believe and we need to be standing for the fact that any, like, change can happen in anyone's life. 
It was last year I was in my uh, office at our, at our old um, central offices and I got a phone call from the receptionist and said, hey Ben, there's, there's someone here, let's say his name is Patrick. There's this guy who's walked in, he wants to speak to a pastor, can you come up and talk to him? And I did the whole, yeah, thing, thinking, you know, what is this? What, what is this guy's situation? Like, no background. And I get up to the reception and there's this guy there and he's like pacing. Like he's frantic, he's frenetic. And so I introduced myself and I said, hey, we've got a, we've got a meeting room just around the corner. Do you want to come in and talk about what's going on? And, and I sit down and he stays standing. And he's pacing backwards and forwards and looking at me and I'm like, I've got the door right here. I'm like, like, am I safe here? And the guy looks at me and says, before I talk to you, I want to know two things. You need to answer these questions for me and ask me two theological questions. I was like, I don't know how I'm, I'm on the, the end of the firing line here, but I answered his questions for him, and then he's like, all right, and, and he sits down. And it start, he starts to talk me through what's happened in the last 24 hours, which has been a build of what's been happening in his life for several years. And I tell you, it was really ugly. There was a lot of stuff in his world which was illegal, it was unhealthy, it was stuff that I wouldn't, stuff he had done that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. And I'm sitting opposite this guy as he starts to bawl because his life has completely fallen apart. Completely fallen apart. He's lost everything. I do mean he lost everything. And as I'm sitting opposite this guy and praying, going, like, Holy Spirit, I don't know what to say. But I looked at him and said one thing that I knew. I said, hey, look, your life is a mess and you need to make some change and I can't guarantee that the consequences of what you've done can be erased. He said, but I know this. I know that Jesus loves you. I know that he died for your forgiveness and I know he wants to help you even now. And at that said, I said, hey, would you come down to my office with me? I'd love to pray for you for a moment, but also there's something I want to give you because a few months earlier at our life conference, uh, one of our visiting guests who are pastors in, in, a, in a part of Australia, um, they'd been given a gift card and this, this incredible pastor, this lady had come up to me at one point and said, hey, look, I don't really need this. I don't really need this. This is kindness. She goes, I don't need this. Would you hold on to this for me and give it to someone who needs it? And over the next couple of months, there'd been a couple of people I knew who were not uh, incredible poverty, but people who were just finding it a bit tough. And every time I went to give this card, I just felt like, no, this isn't the right time. And then I had this guy in front of me who's treated people terribly, who's done all sorts of illegal stuff, who's really just destructed his own life. And I suddenly knew who that card was for. And I pulled it out and I explained the story to him. I said, I really believe this was meant for you. Even all those months ago, God knew you were coming to this office this day, that of all people you'd end up speaking to me because all of our other staff are away, and this is for you. And the guy left that day, and you know, kindness doesn't mean we're dumb. I didn't give out my mobile number. I didn't tell him where I lived. I didn't give him any of my own money. I didn't make any promises. Um, but I did say the one that said, look, this is what I suggest you do now, and hey, I'll be praying for you. And knowing how these patterns go and knowing how these kind of situations kind of work out, I knew realistically, statistically, outside of a miracle, this guy's life wouldn't change. But a couple of months later, I was about to jump on a flight um, to go visit my family in Australia and I give this guy a call, this Patrick. And he answers him because I, I, I blocked my number. He's like a bit, hello, a bit standoffish. And I'm like, hey, Patrick, it's Ben, I'm from Life. Just wanted to call and see how you're doing. And over this phone call, this guy tells me with such emotion in his voice that he's become part of his local church. 
that he's got this group of guys who just hang out with him every week, help him walk through everything that he's struggling with, hear him out, give him acceptance, give him belonging. I hear about how he's found a way to start working again. I hear about how his rehab's going, about how his anger management's going. I hear that the fracture and the little rift in his family is starting to heal a little bit, bit by bit. You can't tell me how Jesus can't heal anything. You can't tell me that there's not hope. Do you know why we have hope? Our God is good. Jesus paid the price for every sin we could ever make and the Holy Spirit is alive and available to us to change us, to move us, to shift us and to help us move on. There is hope. There is hope. And I'm almost out of time. So, but let me say this. You know why this seat was so important? This seat of authority? Some might also say it was kind of a judgment seat. And you know, Jesus had every opportunity to sit on that judgment seat. In fact, the Bible says that he sits at the right hand of the Father. So he sits on the judgment seat for our lives. When we were lost in sin, when humanity was completely gone, you know what Jesus did? He didn't kick back in his seat and go, oh well, you're bad. He left his judgment seat and came down to earth so he could do everything possible that we could be given a second chance. You know why we can't afford to sit in the judgment seat? It's not ours. It's Jesus's. And as long as he says there is hope for, this, for a human being in this, on this planet alive today, we don't get to sit there. We may not be able to make people's decisions for them. We can't change people. But we can't sit there because that's Jesus' spot. And if his redemption is alive and a well today for every single person we come across, then we need to get out of that seat. We need to get down in the dirt and we need to be willing to extend that grace and that forgiveness. And the last thing is this. Kindness starts with me. It starts with me. I don't have millions of followers on social media. You know, I don't, I don't appear on talk shows. I don't have a huge political um, sort of influence or go- governance. I don't make the big calls in our society. But still, I can be kind, bring kindness into every opportunity I face. Every person I come across, where it would be tempted to get annoyed or to frustrated to, to lash out at people, is that I can step in kindness and see one person at a time discover a sense of this incredible kindness that God has given us. Because He loves us. And every time we kill shame with kindness, we bring people a little bit closer to understanding who God is and the hope that He has for their lives. And I, I want to finish up by telling you about a pair of shoes I have. Very exciting. A couple of years ago, I was, uh, it was just after Christmas and I was in a store with my brother and we were just looking to see what kind of sales were going on. And uh, my brother comes up to me and says, hey, I found this pair of boots and they're only 50 bucks. And I looked at them and they were like, they looked amazing. They're only $50. They're literally the only pair in the store. Um, and they're my, they're my size. I'm like, perfect. And about six months later, I found out why they were so cheap because um, the rubber sole had had a nail that had kept the sole in place and the nail came out and the super glue worn thin and, and the, uh, the sole broke off. And so being the incredibly handy, practical person that I was, I put some blue tack on it, <laughs> stuck the sole back on and got on with my life. That blue tack is still on my shoe. <laughs> so I haven't fixed it. But I tell you something about that blue tack. Every time I wear those shoes, I look down and realize that the sole is not quite right. It's off. And I have to kind of reposition it and get it back on. And I know I need to get some super glue. I'm convicted myself. Um, 
Do you know why that blue tack didn't work? It was never designed to be the solution to that problem. It was never designed to be the solution to that problem. It had some semblance of a solution, but it wasn't designed for that. And when we talk about this problem called sin, missing the mark that God has for us, what we're talking about is this. It's not that God is looking for an excuse to pull people down or to judge them or to make them to feel bad. What we're talking about is that God has an incredibly pure and amazing and hope-filled plan for all of our lives. But when we miss the mark, it hurts us and it hurts others. And God's desire is we would come back to His plan for our life. But you know what that means? That means we need a real solution. There are things we can look to in this life that may help kind of reattach our life for a moment, but it's never going to last. There's only one solution, and that solution is Jesus. And like I said, He came and paid the price for every mistake that we ever made so that we could come back to Him. In fact, all we have to do is accept what He has done, accept His forgiveness, and start this life with Him by our sides, with His help. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.